Hello and welcome to the Business of Freelancing podcast. Today, we're joined by Alex Hillman. Alex is always thinking about the intersection of people, relationships, trust, and business. He teaches creative people how to bootstrap their own business and become sustainably independent. We're going to talk with Alex about some of the lessons from his recently released book, The Tiny MBA, that are particularly relevant for freelancers and indie consultants as we grapple with money issues, why people buy, and playing the long game of business. On today's episode, we have Riven Lerner. Hey, everyone. Meg Cumby. Hello. Our guest, Alex Hillman. Hello, everybody. And I'm your host, Kai Davis. Well, Alex, uh, we are super excited to chat with you today. To kick things off, I'm just curious, uh, tell us why you wanted to write this book. What inspired Tiny MBA? <laughs> uh, I love this question because I don't have a good answer for it. <laughs> and here's and here's why. Uh, I didn't want to write this book. I didn't. I mean, it's not that I didn't want to write a book. Like, I'm pretty sure all three of you, I mean, some of you have actually written books. Um, I have tried several times before to sit down and write a book and I've contributed to books, but I've struggled. There's lots of partially finished manuscripts. I think the reason this book happened the way that it happened was because for the first time I didn't sit down and say, I'm going to write a book today. Instead, I sat down and said, I got to write down some stuff that'll help people. And the genesis of this book, before the idea of a book was even in my head, its a book actually started as a challenge on Twitter. A few folks uh, who I know, who some folks may be familiar with, Patrick McKenzie, Patio11 on the internets, uh, as well as Saul Orwell from up in Toronto from examine.com, and a couple of other people around Christmas of last year, 2019, had posted a challenge that essentially said, make a post to Twitter that invites people to like that post. And for every like, you'll reply and basically build a thread of strong opinions, ideas, lessons, examples, observations about a thing that you know a lot about and treat it as a brainstorming exercise. What's a thing you know a lot about? And then for every like you get, write a thing about that. And I was like, I have strong opinions. I can do this. (laughs) 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 And decided that the theme I was going to do was building a business for the long term. So not just starting a business, but businesses that are built to last. And as you'll, as you see in the book, and actually the order that they are in the book is the order that I wrote them in. So it has not been reordered. And you, the, when you read the book, you're sort of reading a, it has been edited, but the order that they come in, there's a re, the, the lessons show up in sort of these like clusters and flows. And I just, we talked about reordering them and putting them into like groupings or something like that. And I said, I think there's something about the way these came out of my brain that if, if somebody receives them in this way, it would be different than if I were to artificially group them the way I think they should be grouped later. And between that decision during the editing process, but much more early on, the fact that I I was basically using the writing constraints of Twitter, right? An idea needs to be 280 characters or less. I've, I've got plenty of experience writing on Twitter, but writing for Twitter is still difficult if you're trying to express something that is meaningful or complex. You know, one of the worst things that happen on Twitter are because somebody has to leave out part of the meaning and context because they only have 280 characters. So rather than leave things out on purpose, it was more of how can I distill it down so that if it's ambiguous, the ambiguity is there kind of on purpose. It's there for you to fill in the gaps. And then the other part of it was realizing that I was like maybe 10 or 15 of the first 10 or 15 posts in. And I was like, this is harder than I thought it would be. (laughs) Again, I have opinions. I've spent plenty of time, you know, answering questions for people. This is an area that I get asked about a lot. I give advice about a lot. So very little of this was, you know, conjuring new ideas, but it assembling them and even recalling them was harder than I thought it would be. And I started, I sort of had to, as I was going, develop a framework and say, okay, for the next five to 10, I'm going to try and talk about specific things related to sales, 
or hiring or partnership. And that's where you start to see some of those things sort of cluster. But you also start noticing that those clusters flow into something new sort of naturally. And I realized, oh, this one thing that I wanted to say doesn't fit in a single tweet. Let me break it down into a few individual things so that each one can stand on its own. So the idea of this Twitter thread was not that you have to read the whole thing, but that each individual one can stand on its own. And in hindsight, what I can say is every time I've sat down to write a book, that's exactly what I've struggled with, is I can write a tweet, an essay, an article, and I can even string them together, but it's figuring out where an idea begins sort of finds its center of gravity and ends, I think is one of the hardest parts of writing. The constraints of Twitter, doing the writing in public so I could get a sense of what people were responding to, resonating with, what they wanted more and more clarity on. I kind of It was kind of built into the format. So all of that happened over the course of about four days, three or four days. I'd sit down and write in little you know, blocks of time. And then it was... Christmas. And so I was like, I should probably put this. The final one was published on Christmas Eve. So I was like, here's my Christmas present to you, Twitter. I wrote a hundred things about business. Have fun. And then it was the holidays. I went offline. I went and went on vacation over New Year's. I came back and it was like six weeks later. And some of the tweets, in fact, many of the tweets from that original thread of 100 were still getting shared. They were getting retweeted. They were getting replies, getting more questions. And I've had a handful of things go viral on Twitter, but nothing that had had this kind of staying power. And it made me think there's something here. The way people are interacting with this is different. Maybe there's something worth exploring. And a couple of the replies had even said, this thread is more valuable than the last several business books I've read. And I think that's what planted the seed of the idea. I said, well, if that's true, and it's Twitter, so I'm going to take everything with a real big grain of salt. But if that's true, then maybe there is a book or a book-like packaging of this thread that would make it so that somebody picked this up as a business book and could say the most valuable business book that I picked up recently isn't a book at all. I mean, it's a book by you know function, by, by packaging, but the contents of it is, if I had sat down to write this book with this as a concept, I don't know if it would have happened. And even now, like, Amy and I have talked about, you know, if people really like this format, could we do this on purpose? I feel like I kind of have to recreate the environment rather than copy the format. Like, I think the environment allowed the format to happen, not the other way around. And that's not super obvious from the outside. But having been through it, I will say that the writing of the book itself was not the hard part. It was, it was, it was not the easiest thing in the world that I've ever done. But, you know, like I said, I did it a few hours a day over the course of a few days. The meat of the book, you know, 90% of the book was written over the course of those those handful of writing sessions. A lot more goes into making a book than just writing that sort of base manuscript. But, yeah, the lessons in in everything from who, who, is, who am I writing for being like the original question. This was, I think, a really interesting example of I was just going to create something for those people and the format kind of presented itself near the end, which actually is a lesson in the book and a lesson in you know the courses that Amy and I teach as well, that like the format comes last. The understanding of the audience, the problems they have and the delivery of the answer or solution or fix, that's the core. That can be packaged multitudes of ways. The fact that it's a book, all books come with certain advantages and we're, we're seeing what those look like now. Very heckin' cool. Uh, uh, after I read it, I, my my initial thought was, oh, you know, you assembled a, a group of ideas, some hit the cutting room floor. So it's fascinating to hear it sort of uh, uh, turned into the book form from the content that ended up on Twitter, that there wasn't, you know, the slush pile that often ends up with a writing project. Yeah, I think that the, the built-in constraints of Twitter made it so that there just weren't, like, there wasn't a lot to cut. It was pretty lean. Kind of had to be. Cutting happened while writing the tweets. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So let, let's talk about a couple of the lessons 
One that I think resonated super strongly with me was on a page 12 about money psychology. And I'll just read it briefly for the listeners. Money psychology impacts the ability to build a sustainable business in a massive way, but most people haven't ever analyzed their own money psychology for habits and flaws. Example, if I gave you the assignment to make $5,000 in the next seven days, how would that make you feel? I I guess uh, uh, to kick it off, tell me a bit about your perspective about this lesson. Where does it come from in your experience and in your work, you know, understanding this audience? Yeah. Well, we've been teaching people how to start businesses for over a decade now, and I've gotten to see a lot of really smart, talented, well-educated, creative, passionate people create things, start businesses around them, and then set them on fire. (laughs) 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 And, you know, I, I say that with with a, a little bit of of jokiness in my my vo- my voice, and that's because I don't know what other emotion to have other than like deep pain. Because I the number of people that I've watched take things that worked and then self sabotage them or squander all the resources they have and not start in the first place. There's one common theme through all of them, and that's something to do with the way they psychologically process money concretely value a little more abstractly. And I think I was talking with another friend about this a a couple of weeks ago, and I, I haven't done a whole lot of research on this, but I have to imagine that there is an entire body of work around money trauma and thinking about why people perceive the sources of money, the their worthiness of money, their ability to receive money and feel a certain way about it. I mean that 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 quote that you um, the mentioned the you know five thousand dollar challenge and how does it make you feel? People start reading that page and they start thinking that I'm going to ask them, well, how would you do it? Especially the makery type folks and the business type folks, and they're like, well, you know, here's you know here's my plan. That's not the that's not the challenge. The challenge is to examine how it makes you feel. And how it makes you feel, I think, can tell you a lot about how you make decisions when it comes to money. And not just how you make decisions, but why you make decisions. And that's sort of the, sort of the examination that I I wish more people could sort of go through or, or take themselves through. I wanted to, um, I, you know, this one in particular is a crowd favorite, I will say. Uh, It's come up in a bunch of podcasts. I get emailed about it probably two or three times a week, specifically this page. People going, all right, you broke my brain with this one. (laughs) 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 And what's what's interesting is, is there's a few different common ways that those people who write in respond to the feeling. The most common, I'd say like 80% of them, is some form of fear uncertainty at the most extreme end of the expression. I've heard the word terror or terrified a lot, which that should tell you a lot about that person's psychology. If a, if a zero stakes challenge, there's, you know, it's not make $5,000 or, you know, the dog gets it. It's, it's make $5,000. Can you do it? What is there to actually be terrified? And so I think there's, if that's a pattern, there's something in there. And so uh, I have a, a couple of questions that the folks who have written in, I, I started asking, I was like, well, let, would you, if you open to introspecting on that a little bit? And the questions that I, I offer are, you know, what exactly are you terrified of? Is it something specific? Is there something that happened in the past that you're worried is going to happen again? Or something that you're worried would make you feel that way, even if that bad thing is not actually happening yet? The second question is, what's the worst case scenario if you tried anyway? The third question is to what are the facts about your situation? You know, what resources do you have that could be useful in reaching the goal, even if it's not getting 100% of there, the way there? Like what could, what do you have that could get you going in that direction? And what resources could you create now so that if you were to get this challenge again in six months or a year, you'd be a little less terrified, maybe even a little bit excited. 
And I think it's that kind of, and there's no right or wrong answer to any of those questions, but that's the kind of headspace that I want somebody who reads that question says, this danger-free challenge makes me feel terrified. I should examine that. And I don't know if I zoom out a little bit, I think that's true of any business decision or choice. If you're making a decision or a choice and you feel any extreme emotion, terror at the negative end of the spectrum, elation and enthusiasm can be just as blinding at the other end of the spectrum. One of my my really good friends referred to those emotions as like a check engine light. And if we learn to see those emotions as a check engine light, it's like, it's not that they're bad or good. They are there. That's fine. But when they come on, they're telling you, hey, pay attention to something. And I think the learnable lesson with that introspection is, well, what are they trying to tell us? What, what, are, what am I trying to remind myself of subconsciously? What am I trying to protect myself from? What am I w- worried will happen because it happened in the past? And then maybe how can I prevent that same thing from occurring again in the future. There's a lot more to unpack when it comes to money psychology, but I feel like that exercise alone is something that everyone, whether you're an entrepreneur or not, like employees still got a job, do this, right? If you, and it could be, you know, if you had to get a raise, same challenge. Uh, it's, it's all sort of the same kind of question is m- money is very likely to make you feel a certain way. That feeling is real, but the thing that you are maybe associating that feeling with might not be. And if you can kind of pull those things apart and examine where that's coming from, sometimes you can realize, oh, this this is not worth holding me back in the first place. I should just try it. Or you can find a very specific thing to work on in the example of what, you know, what resources could you create now? If you realize, well, shoot, things that I need, I need the ability to reach people right? I have no network. And then they go, well, wait a second. I have a LinkedIn profile and all of the people that I've worked with in past jobs, maybe I should go through and see who I actually have good relationships with, but I just haven't kept in touch with and rebuild those relationships before you need them, right? That's a small thing that anybody can do. I'd argue everyone should do once in a while. And it's the kind of thing that if you wait until the terror sets in, that's not what you're going to do. So use the terror as the prompt to kind of like zoom back and go, all right, something's off here. I need to set my set future me up for a win. And one of the best ways to do that is to do a little bit of examining and see what it is that I can figure out to make better for the next time. You're blowing my mind, man. I know. <laughs> I, I was about the same thing. Just, just after I graduated from college, um, I had this friend who was working doing fundraising. And I remember being amazed that she described her job as going to people and asking them for money and rich people to to raise money for the foundation she was working for. I was like, how can that work? And she said, well, they're looking to give money and we are looking for money. And so it's a totally normal thing. And this idea of talking about money, oh my God, who does that? Like you talk to your boss, you ask for a raise maybe every so often if you really, really like get inside you. And so when I started my business at the age of 25 and I started having to like ask people for money, it was a long haul for me to feel comfortable doing that and like not to apologize. And I'm so sorry I have to ask you, but you know, this is what I do. And nowadays, like, you know, fast forward 25 years, it's the most normal, obvious thing, because that's like literally the currency we use to express value. And if I don't ask, like just yesterday, a client of mine was saying, you know, you forgot to send us a, um, a proposal. If you want to do this for free, that's fine with us. And we both had a good <laughs> laugh over that because obviously like no one would expect this. Right. And so, but it took me a long, long time to realize it's normal. It's okay for us to talk about money, for us to exchange it. Um, and for, the, as someone said to me once, the way you say thank you in business is by paying someone. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I mean, I think that in the best case scenario, People are excited and happy to pay you. It's because you did the thing that they wanted and needed. I think the other part of it, and this is another lesson near near and around those pages, is when we make our clients or our customers' decisions for them based on the contents of our wallets. And 
I'm afraid of asking for money because I'm afraid to be asked for money, I think is a pretty common root cause. An uncertainty of, you know, I don't know what I would pay for it, or I don't think I would pay that for it, doesn't mean the other person wouldn't or is actively ready to. So uh, Kai knows this from, from way back in the day, like the, you are, you are not your customer. You have things in common with your customer, ideally, but the thing that they want, uh, the way you, you described it, Reuven too, is like, you know, I, ideally the thing that they want and the thing that you do for money are the same thing. <laughs> I'm still trying to unpack all the, the awesome, <laughs> all the awesome questions. I was like, oh my gosh, you could, you could apply any of those to any part of your life, never mind any part of your business. Like, you know, just to, like to examine what the feelings are telling you. The, yeah. Like that's. Well, I appreciate you saying that. I think there's there's something to that too, where you know, Amy and I have been teaching business for a long time, but we hear things like that pretty often, which is like, this has helped me in business, but it also helped me understand this other part of my life. And I, th- I think there's an interesting phenomenon where people mentally and emotionally separate life and business when at the end of the day, like we're the same sack of chemicals and meat regardless of which context we're in. So those contexts are artificial. And so I think, you know, at the end of the day, I want to, if I understand myself well, I can be my best self in all contexts with my friends, with my family, with my colleagues, with my team, with my clients, with my customers. The idea that I would get good in one and that those things wouldn't somehow translate into the other, I personally, I find that more baffling. Like, how is that even possible? But I think that especially in, in, um, you know, sort of Western capitalistic business cultures, there's this totally artificial separation of, you know, well, that's just business. And, you know, and we, we treat each other differently. And I think all the stuff that we've, we've taught with, stacking the bricks and and even the stuff that's in in the tiny mba is like the thing i like to remember and the the again that long game of business thing is is you don't get to be in business for very long if you are not a good person right uh and obviously there are counter examples to that throughout this throughout especially our, our modern society but in but in most cases there is a lot of good that can be done and you can do very well financially by also doing good. And when you align those things, I think you get to get the best of both worlds and have, I mean, to me, the biggest value is peace of mind, right? I'm not constantly figuring out which me am I supposed to be? Am I business me? Am I home me? I'm just me. That all that extra overhead seems miserable. <laughs> and when I'm thinking about, you know, the the long term of of running a business, part of that endurance race is, you know, choosing my efficiencies. And I think this is one of them that people really overlook. They, you know, th- there's a difference between, you know, who you are when you're doing a business deal versus who you are when you're taking care of your team versus who you are when you're coming up with a new product or service, it's still all you. Uh, and if you're in a leadership position where it's you and other people and they look up to you, I think one of the reasons that people are like the one of the many reasons people hate their work, but one of the most common ones is a, a boss who acts like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde because they are different people in different contexts. And when that is happening, your team also can't do their best work because they're trying to figure out which you they're talking to. So I think across the board, I think it's really valuable to, um, to, to uh, back to your point, Meg of like, these are things that can be applied elsewhere. And if business feels like the highest stake for you to apply it, apply it somewhere else first. Uh, one of the books that I reference in the Tiny MBA and it's in, in the book recommendations list is Just Listen by Mark Goulston, which definitely falls into this category of psychology analysis and, and things like that. One of the interesting things about this book, which is all about sort of de-escalating conflict and, and persuasion to a degree, although it doesn't really 
position itself as a persuasion book, like in the terms of sales. And like, there's some really great classic sales books around persuasion. I think this might be a better book around persuasion for sales, even though it never builds itself that way. And part of the reason for that is it breaks down the process into something that is really concrete and it gives you really practicable skills. But the best part about it is it doesn't send you out into the world to then practice these persuasion skills on your spouse or your kids or your coworkers <laughs> because nothing's worse than somebody who's read a pop psychology book and now wants to do party tricks on their friends. <laughs> in- instead, what he does is he takes the exact same tools and says, here's how you use them on yourself. Because when we're talking about psychology and conflict and persuasion, we have internal conflict. We have to persuade ourselves of things. And so all the tools are things that you can use on yourself. And I feel like that's a really, again, under sort of underutilized, underpracticed mechanism when it comes to a lot of these psychology things. Like if it's not working in one part of your life, try another one. It might be easier there. The stakes might be lower. If you have a money psychology that makes you get instantly tense and anxious, Anytime money is the primary subject, then don't start there. Work up to it around something else that is around value or asking for help or offering help or saying no or other things where your bank account's not at risk, right? And I think the, the all it all ties back together is like, you can only really do that if you know why your brain is flipping out in the particular way that it's flipping out in that moment. So do that inside work first, and then come to the table and say, all right, I know this new thing about me. It's going to show up everywhere. Oops. <laughs> I wish I'd known this sooner. And now I can sit down and do the work. I'm just taking it all in. This is this is an epic interview. I'm excited. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. <laughs> there, there's a related lesson that I think intersects nicely. Uh, on page 10, you talked about how you were amazed how many people who start a business just one of two ways. A, They build a fancy spreadsheet, completely made up numbers, and it massively overestimates their income potential, you know. And B, they never do any math to reverse engineer income goals into project and rate goals. Uh, uh, Unpack this one for us. I'd love to hear a bit more about what you've seen here and how this lesson came to be. Yeah. You know, I I was working with somebody just a few weeks ago who's a 30 by 500 alum. And for those, I've mentioned this a couple of times, for those who aren't familiar, 30 by 500 is a course that my business partner, Amy Hoy, and I teach that teaches people with creative skills how to create and launch product businesses. So this is a student who is making the shift from a full-time job to building a side side hustle, side project type business first. And now they're realizing, you know what, I really want to leave my full-time job and work full time on the product business. I've got my runway. I know how many months I can survive on this. I've calculated my low, medium, high. They had done that work. And I was like, great, that's good to know. Now like, so I can quit now and you know, I've got 10 months that I don't have to make any money. And I was like, okay. Can, can we treat that as your absolute worst case scenario instead of your default though? And that, that question alone, like kind of threw him for a loop. And I was like, well, if you give yourself runway, but you don't actively work to not use it, then you're m- very likely to get to the end of the runway and run out. So it's good to have that number as a bounding box, right? This is my maximum let's put that aside as my maximum for the moment and instead take a step back and do the math of, all right, well, how much do I want to make? Again, let's use those low, medium and high numbers again. How much do I want to make in a month? And let's reverse engineer that into sales. What can I create and offer at what different price points and how many sales at that price point do I need to hit that number? And what folks often find is that those numbers are actually really achievable, or at least they feel much more achievable, or you can create a concrete plan for how to achieve it once you've broken them down in that way. And that's actually where the name 30 by 500 came from. Never name a product a math equation, by the way. It's one of the dumbest things we've ever done. It does not roll off the tongue. People call it every set of numbers except for the one that it is. But at the heart of it it is the idea that you can create $30 worth of value for 500 people every month on the entire internet. 
$30 worth of value a month is not a lot. Anybody with creative skills and an understanding of who they're creating the value for has the ability to do that. 500 people on the entire internet is not a lot. With some work, getting out into those communities, earning the trust of those communities, and then building systems around that, anybody with creative skills can do that. And then you multiply those things together, and we're talking about $180,000 a year gross, which is a big number. So the the idea that you've got that bigger number, that's kind of intimidating, but you can work it backwards into, you know, and what I generally push people to is, is like, you want to get a small, fast to ship and easy to sell product in people's hands as quickly as possible. So let's look at not how do I replace my entire monthly income? Let's look at how do I replace my se- the money that pays my cell phone bill or my health insurance here in the States or my car payment, like make the big ones, like your rent or your mortgage last show yourself that you can reliably consistently pay for one bill every month with a couple of product sales. And once you do that, and you can do that within a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months, depending on what assets you're working with. And then you prove to yourself, oh, I can do this entire process from start to finish. And then you do it again. You do it with a slightly larger product or a higher value product where you now need to sell fewer units or the same number of units and bring in more money. And now you're that much closer to your goal. Breaking it down into those kinds of pieces rather than a complex spreadsheet with a runway and, you know, he was doing conversion rates. And I was like, how can you know what your conversion rate is before you've you've converted anything? All those numbers are made up. So if you're going to make up numbers, let's make up numbers that are actually meaningful, which is a reasonable number of units that you could sell a reasonable price point that you could sell it at, and then start playing with those numbers to realize, oh, in order to sell 30 seats in a workshop, I just need to probably find like 100 to 150 people who are interested in this thing. And there's a pretty good, and if they're already interested in this problem, there's a really good chance that 30 of those 150 are would be willing to buy a workshop. As Again, as, as an example. And if you're selling that workshop for... 500 bucks a seat. Now you've got 30 seats, 500 bucks a seat. Now you've got a decent chunk of change and it's repeatable. That's the kind of math that I think does make sense compared to, you know, fiddly, you know, is it going to be 3% or three and a half percent conversion rate? I don't know. Neither do you. And it doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) I like, I like how that we recently uh, talked to Annie Duke about her book, uh, how to decide. And she, in the, in that book, she talks about like, you know, some people would try to like when you're estimating percentages of something likelihood to happen, probability, you know, like, well, I'd only be guessing. Like, you know, I don't know exactly if it's going to be a 63% chance or a 45% chance. Or she's like, but like, it makes more sense to, would, doesn't it make more sense to like, at, like an archer take aim at a target? No, you might not get the bullseye rather than blindfold yourself, spin yourself around and pin the tail on the donkey. <laughs> That's such a good, like, such a good analogy. Yeah. <laughs> like you might as well try you you know you don't know exactly but you might as well try like you've got some information that would get you some sort of educated guess all guesses are educated so exactly ties in so well (laughs) yeah and i think if you if you if you come into that question and the the honest answer is i don't know then the next follow-up question is is like is it knowable right is it three and a half or four percent that's not knowable until after the fact but to your point, it's like, am I pointed in the right direction? That's knowable. You can go do some research. You can go talk to some people. You can go do the homework. You can go see if they buy things like this. Is there any evidence out there that you're directionally kind of in the right right direction? Cool. Then what's the smallest step that you can take in that direction that creates the positive feedback loop? I think this is something that also I've kind of talked a lot about since since the book came out. I think when people use the word validation like especially when it comes to like validating a product idea or something along those lines what they what they mean but aren't saying is is how do i get a feedback loop and i think the mistake that's made is the common knowledge is, is to go out and talk to people which is better than not we're in agreement there 
But that's not the same as a feedback loop. That's a it, that's an environment where you're sort of artificially creating an echo, right? You say something, they something say something back. What you're looking for is more when I say feedback loop, I think what I'm really talking about is like a flywheel. How do I put in some energy and get equal or greater energy back? And if we're talking about, you know, building an audience, starting an email list. People really struggle in those first few weeks, sometimes longer, where they're out there trying to get people to sign up for the list and just nothing is happening. They're putting out disproportionate effort to the response they're getting. And that's different from put up a landing page and get somebody signing up right away. It's a feeling of I what I got back is proportional to the effort that I put in and also when I take my foot off the gas, there's a good chance it's going to, it's like things are going to keep, they're going to stay on that course. So I don't know. I feel like there's a, there's a still unexplored. This is sort of a a theory I'm kind of working through around the difference between a feedback loop and what people say or do when they think they're looking for validation. Um, Validation to me is more of, I have a wild hair of an idea. Let me go see if anybody agrees with it versus I've done my research. I know that directionally, this is probably in the right way. Will it continue? Did it, does it actually work? Uh, Which is not, you're not going to get a yes or no response. You're going to get the actual response, whatever it is that you're looking for. Meg, I'm curious. uh, uh, Is there a lesson in the book that, uh, uh, like really uh, uh, called out to you or uh, was most interesting to you? Yeah, I, well, I mean, so many of them. <laughs> but if, if we're thinking here, like, I guess one I wish I had learned earlier <laughs> would be um, like, not all income is equal. You know, just, um, uh, I think this one's early in the book, but yeah, like, and you know what, I do have it uh, here, like, and uh, and ties into mother money psychology, but like, yes, uh, all money spends the same roughly, <laughs> but, uh, when, um, and then when you have bills to pay, it feels wrong to turn down work, but not all money helps you achieve your business goals in the same way. And I mean, I can remember earlier on in my career and probably still <laughs> unpacking that sort of thing, but, um, you know, taking, thinking that every project, you have to take on because there's bills to pay or um, I don't know what like love to yeah get your thoughts Alex on what what went into that one or yeah I mean what problems you see I can I can think of so many situations like you said like this is one that comes up all the time and in hindsight it's like man I wish I would have learned that earlier I think there's sort of two sides to this coin one is that if the money that you're bringing in is expensive, meaning that money is going to cost you more time. And I'll say more, like, cause more is relative. So if that money, if that, I think of money as a tool for buying time. And so if money is expensive, that can mean a couple of things. It can mean that that money literally has a, a multiplier on it, like a percentage, like if you're borrowing that money, but it can also mean that money is going to cost time that I need to do something else or that it is important to do something else. And I feel like that's a calculation that folks don't often do, especially when we're so deeply rooted in trading our time for money. So I know kind of everything through, you know, up, up until you go out on your own, you, you start either doing productized consulting or, or even day rates or something like that. Everything teaches us that our time is worth money. And while that's true, the second we frame it that way, we, we put ourselves up uh, at a disadvantage because not all time is equal, right? And we all have a finite amount of it. The other side of this, though, that I think is a little more subtle is when money appears easy. And sometimes like, I think when it comes to product revenue, like that first dollar feels so hard to have gotten there, but it feels that that dollar feels different. And the difference that I hear people say, and I felt this myself is it feels so much more empowering because the way that dollar came into my wallet 
it is de- completely decoupled from the time. It's from a stranger that I didn't have to sit and talk to. And I don't have to spend incrementally more time in order for those dollars to keep coming in. And that's a thing that I haven't figured out how to tell somebody what it actually feels like until they have done it. But once they've done it, that that experience is something that like uh, once you once you see, you can't unsee. And you you want it for everybody, but you can't you also can't really communicate how powerful that is. So, you know, this also goes back to that thing we were talking about before of, you know, the ways that people self-sabotage themselves. I think sometimes people feel like, you know, that money comes in or that money is is now coming in steadily and they start to question whether or not they deserve it. You know, when they've tipped the over the other side of the threshold of like the flight, like, oh my God, it worked. The business is actually working. I got the thing that I wanted all along. Now what? And that sense of, of almost guilt of like, did I actually work for this money? Well, yes, you absolutely did. You just front loaded all of the work so that now you can, you've basically bought back your future time. Now it is the future. That time is yours and you can apply it in other ways. You can invest it in other ways, whether that's creating more money generating, generating assets or spending time on other things that are important to you, spending time with hobbies, family, travel, uh, with whatever it is, um, again, once you've bought your t- future time, how you use it, that's up to you. I think uh, what, one, one of the lessons that I uh, really enjoyed, I guess, even, well, one for sure, you can still be successful even if you never hire a single full-time employee. I often tell people that when I started my business, and okay, it was just me, my dream was to have the Learner Consulting Towers all the way over my city <laughs> and i would look down from my uh you know my penthouse uh, office at my thousands of employees and enjoy what i had done because i mean i'm one of these kids who i would i was reading the business section of the newspaper from the time i was little and i was looking to business and that's what a successful business looked and felt like to me yeah and it didn't mean like going public necessarily but it meant being big and so when i started consulting i said oh well i'm gonna hire some people and they'll help me out and I learned some good lessons that way, like hiring a bunch of people just before the dot-com implosion in 2000. That was Ouch. a good set of lessons to learn. <laughs> um, <laughs> good, good in the general sense, right? And it's amazing to me now that I'm working only on my own. I have no employees. I've never been happier. I've never had more income. And I've never had more prospects. And I don't think starting business me would have believed that this was possible. And granted, some of it is only possible because of what's going on, on the internet now and, and, and what has happened in the last few decades. But it's amazing. And it's so much more freeing. And it's so much nicer because if I want to make a decision, I can do it. I don't need to sort of run it by people. I don't need to think about what the consequences will be for them. I do have to think about the consequences for me, obviously, and for my uh, clients and my family. But that's a totally different thing. Yeah. I think there's something, especially at the end that you said that, I am fascinated by how many people don't see hiring people as a as a responsibility. They see they see it as as this as this they see it as a, a mark of success, like you were saying, because of this sort of cultural narrative and you know what we read in all the business magazines and the newspaper and stuff. But you know, I think about a couple a couple of business leaders that I really look up to, and one in particular just celebrated their. 20 year anniversary is Wildbit. Wildbit's a software company based here in Philadelphia. Teams all over the world, bootstrapped software company, handful of products, mostly for developers. The founders, Chris and Natalie, also a husband and wife, um, run this business. And I think what's interesting about the way they've approached growth has always been cautious. And I think they would even say and admit maybe too cautious when it comes to hiring. But part of that is because from their perspective, if they hire somebody, they want to hire with the ability to say to that person, we believe that this job is still going to be here for you in 10 years. Not that that person has to stay there for 10 years. And they've encouraged and supported members in moving on to other projects and other companies and other areas of growth that don't necessarily fit their strengths. But the idea of hiring somebody with the long view mindset of, I want to know how you want to grow 
and I want there to be growth in this company or organization for you. And that if there is a job for you that you still want, that it's still here in 10 years, does not match the way a lot of people think about hiring. Everything is super short term. It's the business has a need now. How do I hire somebody for that need now? And granted, there's a lot of, you know, ticks along the the chalk line from one end of the spectrum to the other. I think they're both extremes, but I think a lot of people are at the short-term end of the extreme and near zero people are at the wild bit end of the extreme. I think a lot of folks could do better to be somewhere in the middle and say, you know, hiring people is a, a, a privilege and a responsibility as much as it is a mechanism for the big growth of the business and supporting more customers and things like that. But I love this notion that Chris and Natalie from Wildbit have talked about is like the business exists to build the people of the company. The fact that those people make products and those products, or it could be services are what provide them salaries is just kind of, that's the, that's the fuel, right? That's the fuel for, for this particular engine. But the reason the engine runs is for the development of human potential. And I feel like that was more the case maybe in, in another era and, and, and um, where people you know kept a job for 30 years or something along those lines. But when it comes to folks like us who are the business owners, when I think about hiring somebody, I'm very much thinking about there's obviously the, the, the financial arithmetic of does the thing that they do create enough value to pay them what they're worth? And once that's out of, and if it's not, then we've got other problems. But once that is taken care of, what gets me really excited is the potential to look at them and go, cool, what would you like to be able to do while in this role? And it completely changes my job from being someone who is a boss, where I tell them what to do, to someone who's a bit more like a coach. Where I'm like, well, we agree on on where we're going, and you've got ideas for that, and it's my job to support you in doing the job I hired you, not my job to tell you to do the thing that I need done. Those are two very different management styles, and I I strongly prefer the one that's a bit more more about sort of building the capacity of that person. But it's funny you bring up that quote too, Rubens. My my uh, my dad, who was an entrepreneur his entire life. Um, I sent him a copy of the book and he read through it and he's like, okay, I get it. And he's like, not super into the internet. And so any of the, the online and marketing and stuff, it's super not his speed, but he got to that one. And he goes, oh, it's like, you wrote that one for me because his entire career, people are always telling him and asking him, when are you going to hire? When are you going to put more people on your team? You could do so many. He, he ran for the first half of his career. He ran a, a chiropractic office. The second half of his career, he ran a, a sort of boutique carpentry and home remodeling business. And that second one in particular, people were like, if you hired more people, you could do more houses. You've got all this demand. Why don't you hire people? And he goes, because I don't want to. Then I'd have to deal with people. I like my work. I like my customers. Why do other people have to come here and mess it up? And I think, you know, there's, there's um some, there's times where it's good to evaluate that point of view and go, maybe it would be good to bring folks in. But I've always admired my dad for being like, I bring in people when I absolutely need to. And it's always a reminder that I don't want that. And I love that. I respect that. So I think, I think it's really, really a valuable reminder for folks who are like, you know what? I really like my work. I like my clients. I could grow, but I don't have to grow. There's, there's sort of two things. And one is, I think sometimes those people would make the best bosses because they're reluctant. You know, the reluctant boss or the reluctant leader sometimes makes a really wonderful one. But I also think it is really okay for them to continue in their career, just like my dad did and say, no, I do it once in a while. And it always reminds me why I don't. And to check in once in a while and make sure you still don't want to do it is awesome. I think that's really, really smart and healthy growth. Um, but then to know it's like, no, that, that doesn't make me happy. That's not, not what I need to do to make this business work. And if you do hire, then you spend your time or some of your time at least managing, which is not necessarily the fun thing. I mean, there's some people who love managing and that's great, but it's a different set of skills and a different use of your time. And yeah, like I, I'd rather just keep teaching Python, you know, as yeah. opposed to supervising other people and figuring out if they're messing it up and messing up my reputation. Yeah. I mean, Amy and I, in, in sort of the category of business education that we do, we have a handful of 
sort of professional peers that I think are are well respected and do really great work. I think like Ramit Sethi and Pat Flynn near the top of the list. They've got decent sized teams, and I think sometimes people write to us, sort of considering us in a similar category. Um, obviously, we're much much smaller than them, but are surprised when we don't have team members when they write an email and you're basically always going to get me or Amy most of the time me. Um, so yeah, I think there's, there's trade-offs to all of it. I think it's great to know who the people you can work with are before you need them. It's great to have sort of a, a network and a community of creative, talented people with complementary skills. You don't need to make them your full-time employees in order to do that. Uh, uh, that's, you know, that's been sort of the, the heart of my approach to, to business since the start is like have the relationships with people who are good at what they do, have the network to find the people who are good at what they do before you need them, and then find ways to bring them together around projects and opportunities. And if something emerges out of that, then that's amazing. But if it doesn't start there, that's okay too. In fact, we can, I think we can start a, a, a more solid working relationship if we're not bound to each other in that employer employee kind of, kind of format, but instead one where it's like, you're the expert, you're good at what you do. I want to come in, pay you to do that. You come in, you understand my business. It gives me an opportunity to show you what I do. And, and we go from there. The, the word sustainable keeps coming to mind throughout the lessons we've discussed here, where the, the the wisdom you're sharing really seems to point the way to a more sustainable way of doing business with yourself, with money, with your colleagues, with whoever it might be, where it's not, I guess the counter to sustainable would be hustle in my mind, where it's not just like, we're going to go big, we're going to go home, we're going to push hard, but let's do it the smart way. Let's do it a way that respects what we need, what the market needs, what our customers and our audience need, and build something organic for the long term. Yeah, having that long view and saying, I'm I'm more interested, it's, it's sort of like taking the idea of customer lifetime value and applying it to everything else. Where it's like, if I do this in a certain way, can I, can I make it so that things accrue and grow over time versus all of it happening up front? Because if everything's happening up front, there's probably some costs that come along with that as well, right? If I have all the, if I get all the money up front, I mean, I also have to do all the work up front. If I take on all of the team up front, that means I'm also taking all of the management up front. So I'm kind of always thinking about how can I spread it out? I don't want to spread it out so it's thin and that it doesn't have momentum and that it doesn't have structure and framework. But uh, I think you know, your point about sustainability and hustle, I think that sort of the the arc that those things are on is it's about pacing and it's about finding a steady pace where I can keep going or that's what we're talking about long-term businesses. Like the whole point is, is long-term. And if you, if you are signing up to run a race and you know exactly how long the race is going to be, if it's a short race, then you can probably get away with sprinting. But if it's a long race, you need to change your pace. And if it's a race where you don't know how long it is, then you really need to be not just setting a smart pace up front, but regularly checking in on the pace. And I feel like that's the thing about long-term businesses. Like you don't set out to create a 30-year business in year one. You create a business in year one, then you get to year two and go, I think I've got something in here. And then you get to year five and you're like, okay, I kind of know what I'm doing. And then so- suddenly you're at the 10-year mark and going, I think I want to keep doing this. And like right now I've got, you know, Indie Hall's at year 14, Stacking the Bricks is in year 11. And these are both businesses where I can see a long future for both of them, but it's not like I'm, I have a particular year in mind for being done. So it's more about what is, what is a healthy pace that lets me keep going for as long as I need to keep going, as long as I want to keep going. That's a, that's a it's a personal choice. Right, I think that's the key, and this it's sort of tying back to your point earlier, Reuven, about you know if we set our pace based on what's happening on the front page of the business section of the local newspaper or Entrepreneur.com. If I'm if if I you know talk about pace, who's your pace car? Right? Are you are you is it even the right? Are you even on the right race? I don't know. Like we can we can run this analogy pretty far, but I think it's like choose your pace car based on where it is you actually want to get to, which can include 
you know, I don't want to, I don't want to flare out. I don't want to end this business just because I'm tired of it. I want to end this business because I feel like I did the things that I wanted to do. And now I'm ready to move on to the next thing. I'd rather choose to be done with a business than have the business choose for me. And I've never really said that out loud, but I think that's really what like long view business means is like, I want to say we did a good job. We're done. And to be in a position to decide what done looks like rather than have the business be in a position to say, you're done here because I'm burned out because we ran out of money because I, you know, we didn't adapt with the times because our customer base turned into somebody that we didn't want to work with. All those things that can go wrong. Those are all things you can see coming down the pike for a very, very long time. So I think it is about saying, I want to do this for as long as I want to do it. I'm in the driver's seat. I set the pace. I think that's the wrap point, honestly. Like that's just <laughs> mic drop fire. So Alex, uh, uh, before the show and as part of our pick segment, uh, you had mentioned your uh, uh, printer and distributor for Tiny MBA. Tell us a bit about uh, what you loved about them. What was just like a great experience about working with them? Yeah, we've wanted to do a, a physical book, a print book for a long time. And you know, the easy option these days appears to be Amazon. You know, they've got the Kindle distribution, they've got print on demand, they're the place where people go uh, when they want to buy books, except that's increasingly, I should say decreasingly the case. People are actively looking to not buy on Amazon for a lot of really good reasons. The other thing about Amazon is that I'm not this isn't obvious until you've sold a book on Amazon. If you're going through their their KDP, their Kindle Direct Publishing, which is again the ebook and the print on demand, you don't actually own those customers. You're earning a royalty, and it's Amazon's customer. I get basically no information about who bought, and I certainly don't get any way to reach them. And given that part of the goal once we decided that this book was going to be a book was, you know, obviously goal number one is we want these ideas in the hands of as many people as possible and ideally people that we've, we've not reached before. That's the reason to put it up, to put it on Amazon because the Amazon, you know, the algorithm, the recommendation engine, the leaderboards and all that stuff, we could bring our existing audience to that and, and, and work that system. The downside that comes with that is, is the people that buy on Amazon, we have no way of ever reaching again. And we have to hope that they love the book enough that they reach out to us and, you know, want to sign up for, you know, whether it's a, you know, our, our email list or other ways of communicating with us, the podcast, things like that. So I was already like really on the fence about doing Amazon to begin with, but it's the thing that everybody goes to. And so I started looking a little bit into, well, when it comes to the print on demand side of things, what are the other options? And there's a few, but the one that stood out overwhelmingly in the reviews was a company called Lulu, L-U-L-U. And Lulu is, there's a sort of author facing website that you go to lulu.com and it's sort of this uh, storefront for an author where you can go and say, I want to publish a book. And they say, cool, you can hire an editor. You can hire a cover designer. We can help you prepare the files for ebook. We can help you submit the book to all the main distributors. Basically, the more you want, they will do. They also take a bigger cut. And I was like, okay, that's kind of cool. And then I did a little bit more digging and I saw that Lulu has a relatively new product called Lulu Express. And Lulu Express is, is an API that really just does the on-demand printing and fulfillment side of the rest of the Lulu business, basically invisibly. And so it comes with a Shopify app plugin. So you set up a Shopify store and that costs you know, $30 a month or less. We're actually running the $9 a month version of Shopify that doesn't even give you a whole store. It's just like an embedded button. So we can run it on our own website. And then you install the plugin and you put a credit card on file and you upload your book cover and your internals. And every time somebody buys a book, we charge their card. We send off all the information to Lulu. It says, here's the book, here's the the files, here's the destination, print the book on demand and ship it to that person. They charge our credit card and we get to keep the difference. And the amazing thing about this is it's a global company. Like this is not a startup. This is a big printing manufacturing company. They've got fulfillment centers all over the world. 
And so their system automatically chooses a fulfillment center that is closest to wherever the customer is. And because of that, you are getting, we get incredible shipping rates. I can ship a book to anywhere in the world for under $7, which is amazing. Literally anywhere in the world for under $7. And that's because of this sort of optimization where if the book is being, you know, someone's buying it in South Korea, it's actually coming from a uh, facility either somewhere South Asia, Southeast Asia or Australia or something along those lines. Um, so this whole system, once it's set up, is automated. The only thing I really have to log in once a month, once a month or a couple times a month and check um, if something like there's an address formatting thing occasionally, uh, you know, where the addresses don't synchronize and their system will catch that before it gets shipped out. Um, but yeah, the whole, the whole system is automated. So unlike a, a situation where, you know, even as recently as five or 10 years ago, in order to self-publish a print book like this, I either have to go through Amazon or I'd have to go buy a pallet of a few thousand books. And then I'd have to dedicate some day of my week to stuffing these books in envelopes and putting them in the mail or paying somebody to do that. And that wouldn't necessarily give me global distribution. It would cost me, you know, 20 to $30 to ship a book to the other side of the world instead of six or seven. So Lulu does this. It does it all seamlessly. I can't say enough good things about it, but there's one more great things I want to say about it, which is their customer support is amazing. One of the things that I've learned when you ship, you know, several thousand of a physical product in the mail services around the world is some percentage of them are not going to get there. (laughs) That's just the nature of the beast. And Lulu has that number factored into their cost of doing business. Stuff gets lost in the mail. And so I have an account manager. And whenever I got a a customer who writes in and says, hey, I ordered a book. It said it shipped. It never came. I don't even need to do additional research. I pull down the order number. I send it to my account manager. And I say, can you reissue a replacement book? They say yes. They upgrade the shipping to the expedited version. And it's usually in the person's hands within a week of when they they tell me that the, the book didn't arrive. The quality and the speed and the, the, the courteousness and the thoughtfulness and the de- attention to detail that I've gotten from Lulu customer service is a new high bar as far as I'm concerned. All the products and services I've spent money with in the last decade, I can't think of another one that even comes close to what we've what we've experienced with Lulu. It's amazing. If you're if you've done eBooks and you're thinking about doing uh, uh, even a you know a, a small run of a digital book, it's great. The only money you really spend you you know you have to spend is the Shopify cost. And I would run a couple of copies through as test prints just to see how they come out, work out any kinks in the the print process. But once it's set up, there's no cost to you. It's it's amazing. It's it's the the fact that we live in a time where I can treat a book like a digital product right up until the very last second somebody buys and then that book is shipped to wherever in the world that person is in, you know, 7 to 10 days is incredible. Wonderful. Meg, how about for you? What's your uh, pick for the week? Uh, yeah, I'm going to pick a book that Alex actually recommend in uh, your recommended reading list at the back of a book, which is Badass by Kathy Sierra. I've heard it after years of hearing it recommended by uh, both you and some other people. I was like, I clearly need to pick up this book, uh, which is uh, yeah, the subtitle being Making Users Awesome. And um, I've even just started it and already I think I've highlighted so much <laughs> of it. But uh, in terms of like, yeah, I think even if you're not into making a product. I think it's a super, it seems like the, the lessons even translate to services, uh, not, not just to products, but how to, how to build products that make your, you know, customers, your clients better at what they do and yeah, more of the results and more of the focus on, on them and what will make uh, yeah best selling product or service. Uh, yeah. I've already, like, again, just started it and already picking up stuff that's super helpful and mindset changing. So. Oh yeah. Ruben, how about yourself? So I've got two picks for this week, both podcasts. I mentioned last week I've been taking long walks and so long walks are a great time to listen to lots of podcasts. So one of them is uh, called Land of the Giants. Uh, and I'm actually listening to, or I just finished last year's um, 
last year's series, which it's about um, Amazon. Actually, Alex reminded me like about it that I wanted to use as a pick when he was mentioning Amazon. And it describes Amazon's business practices in a not so flattering light, shall we say. But it's amazing. I, I know, shocking, shocking, but true. Um, but it's it's fascinating. They go to a place where one of the original warehouses was and they talk to the employees. They analyze the sort of ways that Amazon worked with, and you could say worked the stock market to get people to invest, even though it wasn't necessarily making money. Um, and the final episode is actually a, sec, uh, a session with, I believe his name is Scott Galloway, a business professor, um, who just eviscerates Amazon um, and really describes them in some of the clearest terms um, and the issues for the world economy, the US economy for high tech and for Amazon, really like in, in um, very uh, clear, interesting, uh, clever language. So definitely recommend it. I'm about to start the second series, which is about Netflix, which is I'm sure going to be equally interesting, if not necessarily uh, positive either. I, uh, I'm a big fan of Professor uh, Professor Galloway's writing and his writing style. Ev- eviscerates is the right word. <laughs> <He's> like, <laughs> he, he, he speaks with um, he speaks with a terminal clarity. I'll call it. Uh, he's got a very strong point of view, but a very well researched one, and I think is is very very talented at, at sort of building a narrative around a case and. Uh, his, I mean, his writing, his articles and stuff like that are, he'll do an op-ed from time to time and they're always something to look forward to. It was like, I don't know, six in the morning when I was walking and I, I heard him start speaking. I stopped and I searched for him because I was like, I've got to hear more from this guy. It was so fascinating. But the whole series was fantastic. The other uh, podcast that I want to recommend is you might know about Marketplace, which is a daily uh, business um, podcast and radio show done by American Public Media, APM. The host, I really like him as a business journalist, uh, Kai Rizdahl, and he and Molly Wood, who does the tech show, they have a daily podcast called Make Me Smart, which they're doing daily, well, it's now daily during the pandemic. And it is so refreshing to hear these really smart, really like well-plugged in business journalists telling you what they really think, <laughs> right? Not holding back, not doing a formal interview, but oh my God, it's so stupid that this company is doing X. You know, we can't believe that Tesla, you know, once again, their stock went up because they're selling carbon credits, not because they're selling cars. Um, And I find it to be short, fascinating, um, and they have guests once a week as well where they really ask uh, deep, interesting questions. Uh, So Make Me Smart is a a fun one as well. I'll have to check that one out. That That sounds right up my alley. My pick for the week is a, a book I've been enjoying and is next to my reread queue. It's uh, How to Get Rich by Felix Dennis. Uh, open and honest book about entrepreneurship, the lessons Felix learned building a publishing empire. He founded Maxa Magazine and uh, became one of the richest people in the UK. He unfortunately passed a few years ago, but this was a book that was super impactful for me when I first read it back in 2012 or so. And it's uh, definitely time for me to revisit it. So I'm just excited to... Uh, review the lessons and recommend it to everybody listening. Once again, the title is How to Get Rich by Felix Dennis. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thanks to Alex for being our guest today. And thank you for joining us, dear listener. Be sure to subscribe to the Business of Freelancing in your podcast app of choice. And if you liked this episode, please leave us a review. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Business of Freelancing podcast. Podcast.